Douglas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Epilogue. Well, after 14 episodes spread over 13 and a half hours of recorded content, we've made it to the end of Season 2 of Endless Summers. Once again, I'm going to reflect on what's happened over the course of this season, which began with the last gasp of George Giffen on the 1896 tour, and ended with the advent of the First World War and the death of the man who most defined the period in Victor Trumper. Let's start by looking at some overall trends of the era. The most obvious thing is just how much better batting had got in this era compared to the previous one that we looked at. This is for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the pitches are just better quality. Uh, Being able to cover wickets before a match in some countries has really helped maintain the quality of the pitch. And just the fact that cricket was becoming more lucrative in terms of financial reward for players, meaning that they could spend more time concentrating on that and honing their craft as opposed to working outside of playing cricket. You can see this improved batting skill play out across a variety of factors. So, for example, when it comes to centuries in the first season of Endless Summers, which was from 1876 until 1894-95, there are 3,600 scored in 46 test matches. So that's a rate of 0.78 per match. So the period covering the second season saw 100 centuries scored in 88 matches, and that's a rate of 1.13 per match. Okay, so the first season only sees two players with three or more hundreds, uh, whilst the second has 14. So this is something that's only going to continue to improve as as the standard of test cricket improves, the pitches improve, the equipment improves, and, and just the nature of batting improves. Not only are you seeing more high scores, you're also seeing a lot more consistency in regards to batsman scores. So across season one, there are only two players who average over 40 and a total of 10 who average over 35 of those who played a minimum of five games. If we look at the same parameters across season two, we have nine players average over 40 and that includes Jack Hobbs, who was the first to average over 50 with 57, whilst 18 averaged over 35. So again, a lot more consistency with the batting. However, it's not only all one-way traffic. Bowlers also have to adapt to these better quality pitches and the different skills that the batsmen are bringing. And so they also have to adapt their skills rather than just relying on the pitch to do the work as a lot of the times they did in previous years. So the first to really come about is the rise of the fast bowler. So Tom Richardson of England is is a standard. He takes 88 test wickets in his 14 matches. Um, And he's the first bowler really threatened with pace consistently. Um, Australia was fortunate that across this period, they had two high quality fast bowlers that they could call upon. So firstly, Ernie Jones, and that was followed up with, with Tibby Cotter wreaking havoc when they got it right. Now, it's still a long way to go, particularly in terms of consistency for fast bowlers. Uh, it's one of those things where you, you often see them going for a lot of runs. Um, and that's also partly contributing to that increasing in the batting averages that we saw. Most teams are also only finding one spot for an out-and-out fast bowler at this time. It's not until Gregory and McDonald for Australia just after the war that we see two out-and-out fast bowlers play together. And then obviously a few years later, you do have the body line series. Uh, but, you know, there's we can start to see the progression of pace bowling as a big threat in test cricket that's going to develop until it reaches its peak, probably with the West Indies teams of the 1980s. The other big development in bowling at this time is the googly. And so when Bozenquay unleashes his creation, it suddenly created massive doubts in batsmen about what the ball was going to do out of the hand. So whilst, you know, like fast bowling, googly bowlers could be punished on their off days, they also could turn matches on their head in a session when they got it right. We saw that a couple of times with Bozenquay. Uh, South Africa's development was built on the back of their googly quartet. And then towards the end of the, the period that season two covered, we, we start to see Australia get into the act with Ranji Horton, who again was able to turn matches 
you know, when he got things right uh, with his high quality googly bowling. So the development of leg spin is something that again is going to continue post World War One, and we're going to see Australia have you know three high quality leg spinners through this period in Arthur Maley, Clary Grimmett, and Bill O'Reilly that, that proceeds through the whole period and gives them a lot of wicket taking power. Another big thing that comes out of this period of, of Test cricket is the introduction of South Africa. Now, when you look at modern day records, you'll see that South Africa was playing tests before this time period of, of season two, but those early tests were retrospectively given test status uh, after the fact. So around the time that South Africa beat England for the first time, a lot of those older matches get that retrospective test status that they didn't have prior to that. But the fact that South Africa developed meant that test cricket wasn't just limited to Australia and England, and, and that helped progress it into what is the global game that it is today. Um, and then without South Africa pushing for the ICC, it may have been more difficult for other nations to get to test status, although part of the reason why South Africa wanted to introduce the ICC was to also limit and pull the ladder up behind them a little bit. Now, obviously, international cricket has a lot of faults and there's a lot of things that can be done to improve it. The fact that the game has participants from such a diverse range of countries that it does makes it a better sport than it otherwise would have been if that was limited to only Australia and England. The final major theme is the shift of power from players to administrators. So with the wealth being brought into the sport, it's no surprise that more people wanted a piece of the pie. The way in which it played out in Australia was quite explosive, obviously with the Australian captain striking an Australian selector. And it would have been interesting to see how things had progressed going forward if, if war hadn't come about and, and stopped cricket in its tracks. What it shows though is there's always that tension between players and administrators about how the wealth generated is shared and that's something we'll see again when we, we get to the 1970s with the Packer revolution as well as the contract disputes in the 1990s and 2010s that played out for those Australian sides. Let's turn our attention now to the best teams from the era. Once again, I'll be picking a best Australian side and a best side from those that played against them. Only matches that were played in the time period covered by season two will be considered. Whilst for the opposition team, only records for matches played against Australia will be taken into account in forming the side. So let's start with the Australians. So opening, obviously Victor Trumper, uh, 48 matches, 3,163 runs, 39.04, with eight centuries and 1950s automatic choice there. The other opener will be Warren Bardsley. He played 20 matches in this period with 1,490 runs at 45.15, with five centuries and 750s. Uh, third is Hill, Clem Hill, with 49 matches, 3,412 runs at 39.21, with seven centuries and 1950s, and there were six 90s in that. So if he just was better in those nervous 90s, you know, we'd be looking at someone, probably the first player with 10 test centuries uh, in Clem Hill there. Uh, number four, and this captain for this side is Joe Darling. 29 matches, 1,399 runs at 28.55, with three centuries and five 50s. Other than that one big series in 1897-98, he wasn't always the best with the bat, but he, I think he, across the entire period matching the batting and the captaincy has to be selected. Uh, coming at number five is Warwick Armstrong, 40 matches in the period with 2,247 runs at 35.66 with three centuries and seven fifties, as well as 70 wickets at 35 with three five wicket hauls. So the first of the all round threats that this side is going to have, uh, obviously he's a good contender for captain in the next season that we get to season three but at this stage a really strong performer over this time period coming number six is monty noble 42 matches 
1,997 runs at 30.25 with one century and 1650s and 121 wickets at 25 with nine five wicket hauls and two 10 wicket matches. A game really close between him and Darling when it came to the captaincy. I just went with Darling ahead of Noble, uh, given that when Darling returned in 1905, he was given the captaincy over Noble. So the players obviously felt that Joe Darling was the superior captain to Monty Noble at that stage. And that's why I went with him ahead of Noble. Uh, Coming at number seven, Hugh Trumbull in this period, 26 matches, 778 runs at 22 with four fifties, and then 130 wickets at 20.81 with nine five wicket hauls and three 10 wicket matches. He was the leading wicket taker uh, for most of this period up until Sid Barnes just pipped him at the end with those fantastic last couple of series that he put together. The wicketkeeper, uh, Hanson Carter, 20 matches, 655 runs at 21.83 with four fifties, uh, 28 catches and 10 stumpings. Uh, first of our bowling lineup, Tibby Cotter, 21 matches with 89 wickets at 28.64 with seven five wicket hauls. Then Jack Saunders, 14 matches with 79 wickets at 22.73 and six five wicket hauls. And then finally, Randy Horton just made the cut seven matches play, but took 46 wickets in those at 23.36 with five, five wicket hauls and two 10 wicket matches. So that's the best 11 that I've got for this season. Some of the unlucky players, uh, obviously when you talk about Trumper, you often talk about him with Reg Duff, but if you compare Duff's record to Bardsley's, it's far less impressive, which is why Bardsley gets the nod there ahead of Duff. Uh, Sid Gregory obviously has the longevity argument, but across the period, he only averages 24, which again, doesn't compete with the best. Uh, Probably one of the hardest decisions was between Kelly and Carter for that wicketkeeper slot. Uh, Kelly has a similar dismissal ratio to Carter, but Carter has the superior batting, which just gives him the edge in the side. Uh, Ernie Jones, as I said earlier, teams of this year only really played one out-and-out fast bowler. And again, Cotter's record is just a little bit better than Ernie Jones, although Ernie Jones did like to rough up WG Grace, so that almost got him a slot. Uh, Bill Whitty, really good record, 65 wickets in only 14 matches at 21. But his best performances really came against South Africa. And the fact that his performances against England weren't as good meant he got left out of this side. Let's have a look at the opposition that this theoretical Australian side will be up against. Uh, Opening, we have Jack Hobbs, uh, played at the back end of this era with 15 matches, but scored 1,320 runs at 55 with 400s and 650s. Uh, It's probably fairly likely that he'll also appear in next season's best opposition side. Uh, Next opening with Hobbs is Tom Hayward, uh, played 29 matches with 1,747 runs at 35.65 with 200s and 1250s. Added bonus that Hobbs and Hayward were county opening partners, so that should be a good partnership there. Number three, uh, not as captain because of his poor captaincy record, but as a batsman, uh, very strong. Archie McLaren, 30 matches at 1,691 runs at 35.22 with 400s and 850s. Stanley Jackson, who will be captain based on his record in 1905, uh, 18 matches, 1,216 runs at 46.76 with 400s and 550s. Also a fairly handy bowler with 24 wickets at 31 with one five wicket haul. We then have our first non-English player appearing in one of these sides with Aubrey Faulkner, played eight matches, scored 880 runs at 62.85 with 300s and 550s, as well as 14 wickets at 50.5. Bowling not as impressive against Australia as it was against England, but he gets in for his batting alone in this side. Next is Ranjitsenji, 15 matches in the period, 989 runs at 44.95 with 200s and 650s. 
Coming in at number seven, I've sort of split the difference here with this player, is Wilfred Rhodes. Played 34 matches, 1,397 runs, 34.07 with 108 fifties. 97 wickets at 23.28 with six five wicket innings and one 10 wicket match. Obviously started this his career as a number 11, uh, ended this period that we're looking at as an opener. So I've split the difference and put him at number seven. Number eight is our second South African with Charles Llewellyn. Uh, across the period, played 10 matches against Australia, scored 390 runs at 22.94 with three fifties, and also took 42 wickets at 27 with four five wicket innings and one second wicket match. Uh, next is the wicket keeper, which is Dick Lilly. 32 matches, 801 runs at 20, 65 catches and 19 stumpings. He basically played the entirety of the period. There was very little other choice there when it came to the wicket keeper. Uh, and then the final two bowlers, which is a very strong lineup for the opposition with firstly, Tom Richardson play eight matches in this period with 46 wickets at 26, uh, five, five wicket innings and three, 10 wicket matches, uh, basically got a 10 wicket match half the games he played in this period. So automatic selection there. And then another is Sydney Francis Barnes with 20 matches, 106 wickets at 21.58 with 12, five wicket innings and one 10 wicket match. The unlucky ones were Johnny Tidesley. He did play some outstanding knocks in this period, but his average of 30 is lower than all the other chosen batsmen. Uh, you have Hurst and Braun, who are, are both consistent figures in English teams and, and have useful all-round statistics, but not outstanding in any area, which means they, they get left out. You have Bill Lockwood, who took 25 wickets at 12, only played five tests, and he's fighting Richardson for that one fast bowler spot. And then Jack Hearn, the older Jack Hearn, that played around the turn of the century, uh, a game... He was competing for a role with the superior Barnes there. So there's the two sides and and what a mouthwatering theoretical matchup that would be. Before we wrap up, just a few words on the future of the show. Uh, Endless Summers is going to be going dark for a while now they've reached the end of season two. When I started the podcast, I had one two-year-old and now I have an almost four-year-old as well as a 16-month-old. So a lot of time spent on dad duties uh, as well. I'm taking a lot of new classes at work. Uh, which is taking up a lot of my spare time creating new materials uh, for that. And then also the football podcast that I run is is doing quite well. Uh, I want to be able to put out regular content for Endless Summers. I don't want to just put out an episode and then go dark for a couple of months. It's likely at this stage that season three will begin towards the end of 2024. I'm hoping around September we'll get the first episode of season three out there. Um, I plan to have the entirety of the first run of episodes prepared, which should go from the 1920-21 Ashes through to the 1930 Ashes series. Uh, And then the second half of that season will take us through to the Second World War. So I just want to say thank you to all who have listened to the show. This is a passion project for me. I'm not looking to make any money off this, but it is still gratifying to see the download figures and have people keep coming back to listen to the episodes. If you want to help at all, uh, sharing the show with friends and family that have an interest in cricket would be appreciated or leaving some written review, particularly on Apple Podcasts. Um, that's the sort of thing that means the world to me. Even just sending an email to endlesssummerspod at gmail.com. There'll be a link to that in the description of the show uh, with any suggestions, advice, or constructive criticism. Anything that helps make the show better, I, I look forward to hearing. Look, that's going to wrap us up for season two of Endless Summers. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.